This is a podcast from the Research and Development Society. On Monday the 13th of October 2008, Ian Harvey, the chairman of the Intellectual Property Institute, spoke on intellectual property rights, catalyst or inhibitor to a low-carbon future. Before I get into the subject, maybe I can just take a straw poll, because I've put a question up there. Is it a catalyst or is it an inhibitor? Uh, straw poll, hands up those who think that intellectual property is a catalyst towards a low-carbon future. Those who think that intellectual property rights are likely to inhibit moving towards a low-carbon future. Well, that's quite encouraging. Preaching, <laughs> preaching to the converted. So maybe those who actually think otherwise and didn't want to put their hands up, um, please feel free to ask questions. And by the end of the evening, um, I hope you'll have got the, the courage of your convictions. But maybe for this audience, maybe if you appreciate the the need to have intellectual property rights, maybe during the course of this evening what I can do is help you give you some more ammunition and data that you can use when you're trying to persuade other of that point. Because I think not everyone, as I will talk about, has the same, has this, has the same view as you and I do. But before getting into that question, I'd actually like to go back to the very beginning. And to why we have a carbon problem in the first place. Uh, so, in the very beginning, cast your minds back. Let me start with a rogues gallery. And this isn't uh, the heads of our banks. Um, you may well know who this person is. Uh, he's a fellow of the Royal Society. Any offers who that is? James Watt. That's James Watt, the inventor of the steam engine. That's the popular view. Any idea who this might be? Matthew Bolton. Very good. Matthew Bolton of Bolton and Watt. Two names which go very well together. Now, a third person. Do you have any idea who this is? His name is John Roebuck. A name to conjure with, a name not to conjure with. Somebody who's actually very important and part of the story that I'd like to weave. We don't even know whether this is the true likeness of John Roebuck because no picture of him probably exists. This may be of him or it may be of his grand-nephew. No one really knows. But let me tell a bit of a story. James Watt, you probably know, and I'm sorry if I'm going to simplify the story for those who know it well or if I take some artistic license. But James Watt, trained as an instrument maker in London, got bored, got tired of the gills promoting him too slowly, and went back to, his, went back to Glasgow, uh, where he based himself at the university, worked with a number of professors there, even though, he wasn't a university, even though he wasn't a professor himself. One of his mentors there was Professor Black, who, uh, who, who discovered the latent heat of steam, but also, James Watt had also discovered the same thing, working in an entirely independent way. And James Watt was aware of the steam engines of the time, the Newcomen engine, where steam was injected into the cylinder and then quenched by spraying water into it, and realized that this constant heating and cooling of the cylinder was a huge waste of energy. Such a waste of energy that the coal mines that were using it barely uh, produced enough coal to keep the steam engines working. And his concept, his invention, was that if you take the condensation component of the process outside of the cylinder, 
and have a separate condenser, then you can keep the piston operating at its, at its high temperature the whole time. And that you should be able to make a quantum change in efficiency of the steam engine. That's what he invented. And he filed a patent, a patent was which was eventually granted in 1769. UK patent 913, which at that time was granted by Parliament as, as, as patents had to be. And it was Professor Black who actually funded that initial uh, patent filing. Uh, James Watt had a number of friends in the area, and one of those friends was, uh, was John Roebuck. John Roebuck was, um, uh, was a local mine owner who was incensed with the inefficiency of his Newcomen engines and uh, gladly uh, took up Watt's idea that if he funded Watt's work, then he could, in fact, develop uh, an efficient steam engine which would make his collieries much more efficient and he'd make lots of money. Well, uh, he put some money in and the experiments went on and as so often happens in R&D, the experiments didn't quite work out. John Bolton kept on putting money in, kept on putting it in until he went bankrupt. So John Bolton was the first backer of James Watt. He put all his money into it, he went bankrupt, he lost his collieries, he lost everything. But he'd lost it in the hope because, his, because the patent value had been assigned by James Watt to Bolton. He had put his money in, in the expectation that if he were successful, then he would make money out of it. He didn't, and he lost everything. And at that point, James Watt himself was in debt to the tune of a million pounds in today's money. His wife had just died. He had three small children to support. And he'd gone back to work as a surveyor on the Caledonian Canal, which was then being built across Scotland. That was where the inventor of the steam engine was. So, move on. Appear, Matthew Bolton. And also Black, Professor Black. Black understood the problems that uh, James Watt was having, but thought that his invention was potentially so important that he paid for it to continue in force. M Matthew Bolton was somebody who had been a, a mentor of James Watt and had been tracking his progress for some time, had seen that he'd fallen on hard times, owned in the Midlands probably the best um, metalworking and machining shop in, in Great Britain, and offered to continue to help James Watt uh, in return for having the patents assigned to him so that he could extract value from them if they were successful. He then realized that the then patent life was too short and he went to Parliament and he and Black got the patent life extended from 14 years to 30 years, longer than the 20-year current patent life. And over that 30 years, by year 15, 18, they actually had a working steam engine which demonstrated everything that Watt thought it could be. The efficiency was increased by a factor of four. It was a huge, it was the seminal change that actually, even though James Watt made other inventions relating to the steam engine, it was that seminal invention which enabled the start of the Industrial Revolution. But it would not have happened had there not been an extension of the patent to 30 years. If there had been a patent there, Bolton would certainly not have put his money into it. And then with many millions of pounds going in, the steam engine, working steam engine, and they all made lots of money, and both of those people died very rich. And it's not often understood, I think, how fundamental patents were 
at the very beginning of the Industrial Revolution. As I said, the starting point of where we are now because we've been burning fossil fuels. But if you look at the history of the Victorian age and the ferment of ideas, and you go back to contemporaneous records in Parliament of the ironmasters and steelworkers and people who were then parliamentarians, not very democratic, but they were, di they were discussing patents and inventions. And it was clear, if you go back to the contemporaneous records, that actually the patent system was absolutely fundamental in stimulating the growth which has seen us through the Industrial Revolution. Up to the point of the steam engine, there had been a 50% growth in per capita GDP in the previous 2,000 years. We would still be living in hovels drinking tainted beer had it not been for what we went through in the Industrial Revolution, driven, I think, and by those who studied very carefully, by the patent system. Because the patent system enabled people to invest in very risky ideas with the hope that if there was these, with the expectation that if they were successful, then they would be able to get back their investment. Most people would lose, and that was, that was gone. But I think that many people actually don't understand how fundamental the patent system was. I've recently finished reading a very interesting book um, by uh, an economist and, and a co-author. Nathan Ro Rosenberg is a very well-respected economist. It was published in 1985. All the reviews of it, and I would certainly endorse it, as being a very interesting uh, explanation of how there were socio-economic changes which enabled the Industrial Revolution to take place. The creation of the joint stock com company migration from, uh, fr from the countryside in, into the cities. But they also say, talk about the system of private property rights as being an essential part. But in 333 pages, there is one mention of patents, and they just state physically what it is. They spend many pages talking about James Watt and his invention, and the inventions made by others during the Victorian era, and they, but they never mention the role that patents played in that process, because I believe very strongly that had we not had patents, we would not have been able to tell that story, because it would not have existed. And... I find this lack of understanding of patents, both historically and the way our society today develops on it, is still not understood. A year or so ago, I came up with the view that if you go outside and ask people what intellectual property is, it's Nelson, Mand it's Nelson Mandela being sued by the pharmaceutical companies and stopping people from getting the AIDS drugs, which are going to save their lives. It's not being able to download from the, from the latest file server. It's not being able to buy cheap genes. So in order to test this, whether this perception that actually IP was a tainted brand in some way, um, a researcher from the Haas Business School, Roya Gafeli, who is here tonight, uh, undertook a study for us. And she, she, she's, I think, a linguist by training, but has worked at the World Intellectual Property Organization and is now, was, then at White, was then at the Haas Business School and is now at Oxford. Um, but she looked at public discourse in print, and in the media, mainly TV, about intellectual property and patents and copyright and trademark and designs in the G8 countries over the past five years. And she discovered that 95% of what was being said and written about intellectual property is either negative or very negative. Most people think patents kill patients. 
patents stop mothers from buying the seeds they need to feed their starving children. And this is driven by NGOs, for example, from Oxfam to journals such as The Lancet. I think it's very concerning because we wouldn't be here, I believe, unless it were for the IPR system. Is, this, is there a problems? So we need to talk about them, and I will talk about them. But I think there is a lack of understanding that of the patent system and that we wouldn't be here had it not been for it. Now, I what I've tried to do is to paint a backdrop where to demonstrate that intellectual property is very important and it remains, in my view, as important as ever. But this isn't recognized by most people, policymakers, many people running our businesses. I can quote you innumerable examples of chief executives and chairmen who don't understand the intellectual property that their businesses are based on. And this, my own personal story in the climate change area is that three years ago I was asked to go to a seminar in uh, Beijing, an EU-China Energy and Environment Summit, to put my head in the lion's mouth because everyone knew that intellectual property was the barrier to technology transfer. And I went there with not sure quite what to expect, but over a two-day discussion, I think I helped people to understand that, in fact, the reverse was probably true. And then about six months ago, actually following a talk I gave here, um, I was asked by Tony Blair's uh, Blocking the Climate Deadlock group if I could become involved in writing a piece on intellectual property uh, for the initiative that he was taking with the J8 Summit in Hokkaido. And what I was hearing from many people was the common assumption that what you need is compulsory licensing, do away with the IP system, let it flow everywhere, and that will mean that everyone has the technologies which they need. And I think that's so far from the truth. I thought the most important thing, in fact, was to get the G8 to have the underpinning of an intellectual property system as being the most important thing. And then we can talk about what the market failures are and what compensating things we need to do. But the most important was to get a strong IP system. And that came out of the statement which the G8 made, in fact. But what I went through was thinking process that I, need, I felt you needed to have to articulate just why the intellectual property system was so important. And I would put it into three buckets. First of all, the incentive to innovate and invest, the James Watt. The legal certainty and clarity that it gives you for anything you want to do with it, whether it's technology transfer, whether it's creating patent pools. And the choice it gives to the IPR owner, to the inventor and to the owner, of what they do with it in future. And each of those, I think, is relevant to the subject of low-carbon technologies and climate change. First of all, the incentive to innovate. If we're going to develop innovative low-carbon technologies in the kind of timescales which I think we need to have, I should say that the seminar I went to in Beijing changed me from a climate change skeptic to someone who believes that we need to do something very, very quickly. But that's a different story. But if we're going to have the low-carbon technologies developed as quickly as possible in very short timescales, we're going to need massive investment in a broad range of ideas and concepts, most of which will fail, but a few will succeed and deliver what we need. And so in order to do that, we need to create the policy environment for what I think would be one of the most profound investment waves in history. To attract that kind of investment, you need to have the incentive of generating attractive and sustained returns if and, well, if, if and when the investment that you've made 
creates a product which is successful in the marketplace. And intellectual property rights, particularly patents, provide that incentive and certainty of return. They provide clarity and certainty about the ability to capture revenue streams when the product reaches the marketplace. Businesses will invest in risky projects if they have that reasonable certainty that they can benefit from success if and when it occurs, even if the probability of success is low. Just as an example, the biotech industry. If you look at that in totality, you would have to reach the con you, you do reach the conclusion that it was not a sensible investment to make. Because if you look at the entire industry and all the companies which have failed and the net return on average, it is very low. Yet, we have the Genentechs, we have the Amgens, which have been very successful, which are delivering new therapies, which are, which are and will continue to be very important in changing medical therapies. And that their shareholders will make out very well, thank you very much, and compensating for everyone else who's actually lost out. But it's not just the biotech and pharmaceutical area. If you take the physical sciences, some of you may know of Obshinsky, who's been in new materials, uh, in semiconductors. He has raised $500 million over 40 years. Some people think he's a crank. Some people think he's a genius. Those who thought he was a genius have provided him with $500 million. But it was 40 years before his investors started to see a return on that investment. But today, his inventions are beginning to have a significant impact in solar cells and in, and in electric cars. So two examples from quite different sectors. Compulsory licensing, I'll take this initially here, but I'll come, I'll come back to it. If there are threats to the strength of intellectual property, that is a disincentive to invest. And one of those is easily obtained compulsory licensing. People are not going to invest if they think that the government will come and say, you made enough money now, we're going to take it, and we're going to decide who, who, who can benefit from it from now on. It is, you can see that, actually. It's not well known, but in the 1960s and 1970s, that happened in the United States. The consent decrees the Justice Department entered with about 100 major companies, ATT, ITT, IBM, Xerox, to mention just a few, those effectively, that effectively was compulsory licensing. And the idea at the time was that small and medium enterprises in the United States would get access to the technologies being monopolized by the majors. What in fact happened was that they were licensed to Matsushita and Canon and Brother. But it did destroy the incentive to invest in new technology development for Xerox, which is a company I know well. But when they knew that any invention they made was, was going to be licensed to their competitors, they actually stopped investing. It was not a sensible use of shareholders' money, and they couldn't justify it at all. And when you look at the decline in R&D spending and new ideas coming out of the United States in the 70s and 80s, it directly relates back to those consent de decrees, which were de facto compulsory licensing. If you... So compulsory licensing is not a problem. It tends to be an easy reaction because the market isn't working properly at the moment. But the reason the market isn't working properly at the moment is that the pricing signals aren't right. Carbon is not priced at where Nick Stern says it should be. When we get that right, the price signals will be there and then people will start to invest. And it would be a, a very stupid thing to do, to say we need to have compulsory licensing 
to deal with the more fundamental problem that the pricing signals aren't right yet. That is the fundamental thing we have to get right first, and many other things will, will, will flow. Any market failures we can see need to be addressed without damaging the benefits brought by the IP system. I talked about the legal clarity and certainty. Some people I talk to think that if you put patents into the public domain, intellectual property in the public domain, anyone can use it. Well, that's not true. You can't give away something that you don't own. You can't walk up to a house and say, this looks nice, I'm going to give it to the person across there. You can only give away something which you actually own. And the intellectual property right is the legal document which says you own this. Whether that intellectual property right bears a price is a subsequent decision. You can, you can decide if you have a patent or a copyright whether you're going to give it away, whether you're going to license it, or whether you're going to sell it. But you don't have that choice if you don't have the intellectual property right in the first place. If you want to get into a technology transfer agreement, you can't have an agreement if you can't specify what it is you want to transfer, because it's intellectual property which gives you that. I became involved with the ALVI program in the 1980s, which was a disaster. And that was technology on the hoof, intellectual, pro intellectual property on the hoof. We'll decide how it's going to be used when it arises. One of the, of the results of that was the erbium doped optical amplifier coming out of Southampton. The UK lost billions of dollars in potential royalties because actually that was given away by GEC Marconi, who didn't own it in the first place. <laughs> but because it hadn't been specified and tied down who owned what and who was entitled to do what, it just evaporated. And intellectual property rights, if you want to get into standards, which can often be very important, if you're going to create a standard, you need to know what you're putting into the standard. And the intellectual property right, it might be a copyright, it might be design, it might be a patent. That tells you what you're putting in, defines what everyone else is putting in, what you're entitled to, and what you're entitled to get back. Patent pools, for example, won't work. Or pools of technology won't work unless you can define what you put in. Freedom of choice. It's, uh, as I mentioned, the creation and ownership of IPRs are quite separate from the decision of whether you charge for them or not, or not. Because without IPRs, there's no choice. With clarity of ownership comes freedom of choice in how you're going to exercise that ownership. When I go over to Brussels and talk with parliamentarians, they say, oh, what, what we want is open source. And I say, well, ask them, what do you mean by open source? And for most of them, it means, hooray. No IPRs, and it's free. Well, actually, as you probably all will know, that's not true. Because open source only works if there are IPRs. You have to define what you're putting into open source. And it is your copyright in the software that you put into the public domain, just reinforced by a, court, a case in the Court of Appeal in the States, in the Second Circuit, where it was clearly supported by the, by the legal system that... You can, if you put, it, if you put tech, uh, copyright into the public domain through open source, you can require that no royalties be charged. And that was enforced. If you can't define what you've put in there, you can't support that particular position. And in fact, open source absolutely fundamentally depends on copyright. And it's actually just a different business model. Some people charge for open source, others get their revenues from adverts or they have a second business reason. 
IBM supports open source, but it's actually subsidizing the open source structure to the order of half a billion dollars a year because it suits its business purposes. So open source, I think, is a classic case uh, where people think one thing, but actually the reality is quite different, and it wouldn't exist without IPRs. Just as an example of collaboration uh, in the clean energy area, um, in contrast with the ALBI program I mentioned, BP has a program of clean technology research centers, one of which is at the Dalian Institute of Chemical Physics in China. It's the largest project entered into by the Chinese Academy of Sciences, $10 million. It took them two years to, uh, to agree the, the intellectual property structure for it. Who owns the background, the foreground, the side ground, IPR, uh, IPR, who's going to benefit from it, and so on. It took two years. Both sides are very satisfied with it, both the Chinese and BP, because it's clear who provides what and who is going to get what from the investment which both sides are making. And that kind of collaboration doesn't work unless there are IPRs, which, can, which you can bring in. IPRs, patents particularly, encourage diffusion. As, as, you, as I'm sure you know, a patent requires publication of the technology. It puts it into the public domain, so people can then stand on the shoulders of the researchers who made that invention. It's still uh, an, uh, an information source which is poorly used. Remarkably few companies that I talk to and researchers will review the patent literature before they start doing their own research. Whereas, in fact, that tells you what everyone else has done, and you can then build upon it. The patent publication actually requires early dissemination of technology, the alternative being to keep it secret for as long as you can, which stultifies the development of new technologies. Early IPRs can prevent blocking. I sometimes hear that, well, the state has paid for it, it should go into the public domain, and we don't want to have patents because we want to have it freely available. Um, I hope I've given some indication of the arguments that you use that, is, that that isn't true because people, pharmaceutical industry in particular, won't invest in a new product unless they can get the benefit from the risk which they're taking. But penicillin, for example, was invented in the UK. It was not possible to patent medical inventions at the time in the 1930s because it was thought to be a model. It was developed, uh, it was synthesized in the UK, and then it the invention was passed to the United States uh, for, for large-scale production during the Second World War. And the American companies that were brought in developed production processes for it, which is then patented. And in order to produce penicillin after the Second World War, the UK fortunately was not blocked by the American companies from producing penicillin here, but they could have done that if they'd wished to. Instead, they just charged British companies extremely high royalties the pleasure of producing penicillin, which had been invented here. And of course, had the UK patented penicillin, the shoe would have been on the other foot. A very clear case where, even if it's developed with public funds, file patents create the intellectual property structure around it, and then you can decide how it's used. If you want to give it away, fine, but then you can define what you're giving away. You may, you may only want to give it away in a certain defined area. Some of the problems that I hear complained about uh, and, the, and, and that are potential issues, I wouldn't want to minimize that. But patent thickets where in the IT in industry, there are so many patents that people say, well, there's royalty stacking. You know, if we paid every royalty, we'd be paying, you'd be paying double the cost 
for a particular piece of equipment. When at BTG we were licensing ma our magnetic resonance imaging tech technology, we used to hear that. So actually we charged a fairly low royalty. We only charged a 3% royalty to most firms. But actually, even in the case of, of a sector, of an industry, where there are many patents coming out by the nature of the industry, companies complain about it. They're very voluble, but they almost always solve it by cross-licensing, by creating patent pools. In the very few areas that I know of, where it actually hasn't been solved. So people complain, but one shouldn't listen too loudly because they usually solve it. And there are lots of examples, MPEG, for example, which we all use with our iPods and so on. Um, there are patent pools there, audio, video, digital television now. MPEG LA is a commercial patent pool uh, where the intellectual property in there is very well defined. And if you want to produce a digital television with certain quality of sound coming out, you know the royalty that you've got to pay and the access to the patents which you get all specified, you know what you're getting. One of the issues is that um, antitrust law differs between world areas. So that, for example, in the United States, licensing is regarded as pro-competitive. It allows the technology to flow where it will create the greatest economic welfare. Unfortunately, Article 81 says that license, uh, of the Treaty of Rome says that licensing is a constraint on trade and, but it won't be a constraint on trade if you can fulfill the following conditions. But basically, licensing has a negative view within Europe. And, at, and if you look at the current investigation by DG Competition into the pharmaceutical industry on the hypothesis that the low rate of new product approvals is due to misuse of the patent system, um, my view is that it, the competition authorities in Europe do not have a good understanding of the role that intellectual property plays in wealth creation. So Europe and the States, Japan is a bit different again. But if we're going to have low carbon technologies which need to be brought into a pool, then we need, if indeed they're going to be used globally, then we need to make sure that behavior which is legal in one territory is not, legal, is not illegal in a different territory. And I think particularly the US and Europe need to get their act together on that one. Now, the thorniest of the issues, I think, is compulsory licensing and developing country access. Because there's often the thought that the developed world is, well, it, it is not the developing world's problem. And we're going to be forcing this new technology down the developing country's throats and forcing them to pay developed country prices for them. I think the, the concerns of the developing world that we should be concerned about are principally about whether they'll have access at fair or affordable prices, and that those, of course, aren't the, the same thing, to technology which we are pressing on them. I think it will be a perceived and hypothetical issue in many cases. Um, and easy compulsory licensing with free riding coming after it isn't the, isn't the right solution. Most technologies most patents are not filed by most companies in most least developed countries. It just isn't worth it. If you look at drugs in South Africa, most companies haven't filed drugs in South Africa in that particular sector. The market is too small, the costs are too high, it just isn't worth it. So in that case, a, patented, a technology which is patented in Europe or the States is free to be used in most LDCs within that country, which is fine. If a company in that LDC then wants to manufacture in that country for ex export to a country 
where there is patent protection, then of course that begins to erode the expectations people have had when they invested and used the patent system for getting returns at the end of the day. So we, we move into a different area. Provided there is no leakage of products from a least developed country into developed country markets, most companies will, will sell at differential pricing. They'll sell more cheaply in the LDCs than they do in the developed markets. If there is leakage back through what is through parallel trade, something called exhaustion of rights, then that creates a problem. And it was a Doha declaration which eventually came about in the case of pharmaceuticals where it became illegal for drugs sold at preferentially low prices, very low prices in the developing world for those to be resold in the developed countries. And for example, people have recently gone to, to prison in the Netherlands because that's what, what they did. They brought, bought drugs from people who were taking it, who only took half the course then, um, and, and, and they sold it to people who would still only take half the course, and you end up with drug-resistant TB and AIDS in both areas, and some middlemen made a lot of money. But some of those middlemen are going to jail. However, I think it's questionable whether it, it is really working. And if some form of Doha declaration were to be used for low-carbon technologies, I think we need to have a quick, serious look at whether it is working in the pharmaceutical industry. Some people say it is, others claim that it has no teeth and isn't. And I think some facts there would be very helpful. If, again, if we're going to have differential pricing, some countries will need to change their laws. In Japan, Japan would not restrict the import of a technology which had been made in a non-patent territory and sold into Japan, which was a patent territory. So I think, I'm actually speaking at a, at a seminar at the end of the week uh, of intellectual, international intellectual property lawyers who understand the laws, but they don't understand the technologies. And I hope that in the discussion afterwards we'll surface any of these issues that I need to be raising in this group of lawyers, because I think we do need to be open to, to the issues which, which may arise, but they aren't always the obvious ones. If there are relevant intellectual property rights, finally, which do inhibit otherwise legitimate take-up in the developing world, I think there are several solutions. If the IPRs are publicly held, that is, they've come out of universities, out of government, out of government research labs, then local uh, developing country companies can have a geographically limited license, they can have a free license or a preferential rate. And that wouldn't significantly damage the broader objective of using the patent system to incentivize innovation to provide products for the countries which are actually creating the major carbon problems. If the IPRs are privately held by companies, I think there are several solutions. Their use can be paid for or subsidized by governments. They can be, used, they can be paid for or subsidized by charities, as, the, as in the case of drugs they are with the Gates Foundation or the Global Fund. Uh, you can have guaranteed offtakes at specified prices which is what the World Bank has been underwriting in the case of drugs, where they say, if you can develop a drug to treat this disease, we will guarantee the offtake of a certain volume of drugs at this guaranteed price. Compulsory licensing is there as a last resort, but it really should be a last resort because of the damage it does to the incentive system as a whole. 
So my recommendations would be, first of all, the most important thing is to help convince other people that if we're going to generate the vast numbers of low-carbon technologies, new energy technologies that I believe we need to have if we are going to prevent the worst-case scenarios, which some are now painting, then a strong intellectual property system is absolutely fundamental to that. We need to have an energy revolution equivalent to the industrial revolution of 150 years ago. And unless we understand the role that intellectual property plays and are willing to defend it and argue for it, I think we actually will not get there. The organizations that are best placed to handle this, I think, are the TRIPS Council of the WTO, because the WTO has the business understanding, the economics understanding, and they have an enforcement mechanism which they have developed through their work in TRIPS in the 1990s and in other trade dispute areas. Their conflict resolution mechanism is quite good. WIPO, which maintains the integrity of intellectual property structures, um, that's what they should stay doing. They're good at doing it, but they don't have the commercial, the business, the economics expertise and understanding, and they certainly don't have any kind of dispute resolution mechanism, which you need to have in this kind of case. And the last point, some of you some of here will be familiar with my um, engagement with China, which is the extent to which China has embraced intellectual property is not well understood. But, they ha but they're far ahead of most people's perceptions, and certainly far ahead of the myths and anecdotes that one hears about too often. I was in China talking with the Minister for Telecommunications last March, and I had the best discussion I have ever had with any minister in any country at any time. And I've talked with a few in my World Bank days and when BTG was part of the government sector and, and various other times. That minister knew all about intellectual property. He knew about business. He knew about royalties, about licensing. He knew what the other countries were doing. They, as a government, understand intellectual property better than any other government I've come across. And they understand why they're doing it. Wen Jibao has said many times, competition of the future is going to be competition in intellectual property. And so at the higher levels of government, there's really a very good understanding of how important intellectual property is. We need to bring China into the top table in terms of creating processes, structures, and frameworks that are going to work for everyone. Because China, as we all know, is the largest CO2 emitter today. They've also been one of the most creative countries for the last 2,000 years, and the last couple of hundred years been a bit of an aberration. But in my travels around China, I see this creativity really bubbling up now. And we, we need to understand that it's there. Because I think many of the technologies we need are actually going to come out of China, either directly or through Chinese collaboration with other people outside. And so China has to win both ways. It wants to have access to the technologies, but it also wants to help create the use, the widespread use of the technologies which it, which it believes, and I believe, are likely to come out of China. So they can understand both sides of the question very well. And I think to have China at the top table opposing the Indias and the Brazils who think intellectual property actually, we need to forget about that, compulsory licensing is the right way to go. I think China would be a very powerful ally to have. And I've recommended to Tony Blair's group that actually we have that as a central part of what we should be doing, to have them brought into the top table. 
So I hope I have reinforced the prejudices that you may have started with that um, intellectual property rights should be the catalyst to a low-carbon future. And if you want to see more about what we've done on IPR in particular, uh, the website, um, the, the annex that I wrote on IPR as a catalyst is available there. Thank you very much and very happy to have the discussion. For more from the Research and Development Society, visit rdsoc.org.